Welcome to The Megan Kelly Show, your home for open, honest, and provocative conversations. Hey everyone, I'm Megan Kelly. Welcome to The Megan Kelly Show. In just a bit, we're going to go on a deep dive with two experts talking about how you can reach your 2023 goals. I am motivated after having read these packets in preparation for these segments. And you are going to feel motivated too how to figure out the right diet for your body and the right exercise program and how to stick with it. You know how like all you need to lose those pounds that have been haunting you is just like a little kick in the pants, a little motivation. I'm feeling it. I wasn't feeling it before. I'm feeling it. And I'm going to give you that gift in just one minute. But we've got to start today with just a bit on the whiner in chief, Prince Harry. His upcoming memoir has been obtained by several news outlets now after Spain, some some book place in Spain printed it saying nobody told us it was on. It was embargoed until next Tuesday, put it on the shelves and we were off to the races. Uh, Now, several news outlets have the book and the headlines from it are coming out fast and furiously. Oh, unbelievable. Some of the stuff he's saying. Prince Harry reportedly details a physical fight with William, accuses William and Kate of being behind his decision to wear that Nazi uniform to a Halloween party 18 years ago. He wants you to know it's not his fault. He would say it's his brother's fault. That too is his brother's fault. And he even takes a swipe at his own late mother, Princess Diana. Uh, With what's coming out, there's almost no way the palace can ignore these accusations and remain silent, say many pundits, though that strategy has been working for them thus far. Joining me now to discuss all of it is Tom Bauer, author of Revenge, Meghan, Harry and the War Between the Windsors. Tom, thank you so much for being here. So lots to get to. But what's your overall reaction to the headlines that we've seen so far? Well, it's sensational. And I must say, I predicted it because I thought that for the $20 million that Random House paid, they wanted a lot for their money, and they've got it. It's uh, it's explosive, it's hugely damaging to the British royal family and to Britain's reputation, and just as the latest in the salvos from the Sussexes, starting with Oprah Winfrey, then the Netflix series, newspaper interviews, podcasts, and now this. And it can only get worse. It's hard to imagine how, uh, because some of the headlines here are so ungracious about his brother, the future king of England, his father, the sitting king of England. He wants you to believe his father is an unfeeling jerk who, on the day he was born, declared great to, to Princess Diana. Now I have an heir and a spare. My job here is done. That when he told the boys that Princess Diana had died, he went into their room. Uh, William was, uh, there was 14, I think, and Harry was 12. And uh, that when he told them, my dear boy, your mom has died. She's been in a car accident. He didn't even hug Prince Harry. I mean, he clearly wants us to see his father as a cold, just cold hearted fish. Well, first of all, how would he know what uh, Prince Charles, as he then was, said to Diane on the day of his birth. I mean, that's ridiculous. He's got no evidence for that at all. And as for the the way in which he was told about the death, I mean, it was traumatic. Eyewitnesses disagree with that interpretation. I think more interesting about their relationship is Charles apparently joking, inverted commas, with Harry, that perhaps Charles is not Harry's father. And that, I think, as I raised in my book, there is this uh, story. It's not to do with 
a man called Hewitt, who's an army officer who did have an affair with um, Diana, is about an unknown or unnamed lover that Diana had between the two births. And uh, that has always been a subject of contention uh, that uh, Prince Charles or King Charles is not really Harry's father, which Harry has now brought up. Um, you know, th this is really hugely explosive and very damaging for the royal family. Well, and what does he say about what does it say wait, about wait. Harry? I mean, what well, a traitor. Uh Exactly. Let, well, I'll get to that in one second. But on the subject of uh, Prince Charles and this joke, he says, oh, this is a remarkably unfunny joke, given the rumor circulating that my actual father was one of Mummy's former lovers, Major James Hewitt. And he goes on to say that's because of his flaming ginger hair. But he says another cause of this rumor was sadism. And he says, never mind that my mother didn't meet Major Hewitt until long after I was born. OK, so this is a rumor that we all read in the tabloids. He does look like Hewitt, but you're saying the timing didn't work out. And there, well, there may have been another lover. But but just to finish the point, I as a parent, this is what you do, because the full context, he says that the father was saying, who knows if I'm really the Prince of Wales? Who knows if I'm even your real father? He's showing him that humor is a way to deal with these nasty rumors that he could laugh at himself. Who knows if I'm really the prince and who knows it, it's a it's a gift. He's trying to train his child to deal with the negative press, something clearly Harry to this day refuses to learn. Well, that's one interpretation. But I mean, I think it's far worse. I think he is sowing seeds of doubt in every direction he can. And uh, whether it's about his cocaine habit, killing 25 Taliban, he now claims, um, all these allegations, I mean, the fight with William, which is bizarre because the photograph of Nottingham Cottage, where he allegedly fell and hurt his back breaking the dog water bowl, the water bowl is made of metal. And then Meghan apparently telling uh, Kate that she's got baby brains, I mean, the point about all this is that Meghan was intent on establishing her own domination in the royal family. And when that didn't work and she finally decided or early decided she was going to leave, she uh, opted for revenge against those who didn't give what Meghan wants. As Harry famously said, what Meghan wants, Meghan gets. And she's getting it now. It is, mm. she is, all my research shows, that throughout her career, she has been an agent of destruction. And she is very cleverly now, through Harry this time, and undoubtedly there'll be a Meghan book too one day, sowing destruction amongst the royal family. I mean, this is very, very damaging stuff and explosive. The lack of accountability of taking any responsibility for his role in any of this is remarkable on Prince Harry's part. He he doesn't in any form that we've seen in the leaked excerpts say I had a role in it, too. And the the argument that he had with Prince William at Nottingham Cottage in 2019 is a perfect example. I'll take the viewers through what was weirdly suddenly leaked to The Guardian, a left wing newspaper that Dan Wooden, our friend and uh, reporter at GB News, points out wants to abolish the monarchy. So it's pretty interesting. This excerpt was very clearly leaked to The Guardian uh, by Prince Harry's people. That's my supposition. It's not proven. Um, he talks about a 2019 fight scene, OK, where it was his London home 2019, where Harry says William called Meghan difficult, rude and abrasive, which Harry then said was a parroting of the press narrative and that he expected better. 
of Prince William. He says, Prince William grabbed me by the collar, ripping my necklace. Why was he wearing a necklace? Some of us would like to know. Okay, Tony, Tony Windsor, (laughs) grabbed me by the collar, ripping my necklace and knocked me to the floor. He says that resulted in a visible injury to his back because he landed on a dog bowl that then shattered. I don't know what kind of dog bowl he's got. Most of us have plastic dog bowls. Okay, that can't cut cut up your back, but whatever. He's a Windsor, so perhaps it's made of you know, glass. I don't know um, that William had come over there in the first place to talk about, quote, the whole rolling catastrophe and arrived, quote, piping hot to me so far. Tom, this tells us William was angry behind the scenes. He was angry at Harry and Meghan for a reason. But the reason goes unaddressed. Harry just puts it all on William's anger and how he was this poor victim who, after allegedly being grabbed by the collar and shoved down by his big brother, doesn't fight back. This this guy who killed 25 Taliban, as he claims, doesn't, you know, shove his brother back, doesn't, you know, tell him to get the hell out and then go talk to his wife. He called his therapist. He called his counselor, which I'm sorry, but feels the whole thing incredibly emasculating for this guy who clearly wants us to see him as a tough guy. Well, uh, and, and, and raises so many questions. I mean, we don't know whether he hit it back or not. But at that stage in 2019, uh, William had good cause to be furious with Meghan and Harry. They had, after all, uh, bullied their staff who had submitted many complaints. They clearly were intent on leaving. All the fears that William, Charles and the whole family had had about Meghan had come true. She was, she'd leaked by then uh, to the People magazine her complaints and the letter to her father. She had started a legal action. She clearly was being, a, a, as I say, an agent of destruction. And William went across there because he was furious. And as you rightly say, Harry doesn't say whether he's guilty or not. But we know that by then Harry was equally intent on leaving. He was delighted by the thought of going to California. It was just a matter of how the so-called victims could portray themselves. And I think this is the interesting point of all this. Harry and Meghan, for the last three years, two years, have portrayed themselves as victims, but they're the aggressors. They're the ones who constantly lob bombs at the royal family, whether through opera or Apple or Netflix or now the book uh, and all the interviews. It really is an astonishing act of treachery, in my view. And he has a couple of admissions to that effect without apparently realizing that he's admitting that bad behavior. The one where he admits we now get some new details from him about that infamous fight between Meghan and Kate, where the the papers said that Meghan made Kate cry. Meghan went on Oprah and said, it was the reverse. She made me cry and she came back to apologize for it. This is the quote she said to Oprah was the reverse happened. It made me cry and really hurt my feelings. It was a really hard week of the wedding and she was upset about something, but she owned it and she apologized. Well, now we learn from Harry that What, according to him, happened was there was a discussion about the timing of the wedding rehearsal and the flower girl dresses, and Kate was very upset. Quote, Megan said Kate must have baby brain because of her hormones. It caused a huge row because Megan was told she wasn't close enough to Kate to discuss her hormones, and this was not the way people spoke to each other within the royal family. Megan felt the fallout was not her fault, according to somebody who's reviewed the book. But, you know, this doesn't make her look good. So that's Meghan insulting Kate. And secondly, Tom, this is from Prince Harry, who says his second argument with William and with 
Prince Charles, uh, at the time Prince, now King, was in 2021 after Prince Philip's funeral, where the the now King, uh, but then Prince said, look, boys, please don't make my final years a misery. And he writes as follows. Stand by. I looked at Willie. He calls his brother Willie. Will calls him Harold. Really looked at him, perhaps for the first time since we were little, taking in every detail, his familiar scowl, which had always been the norm in his dealings with me. He says his brother's baldness was alarming. That's in quotes and quote, more advanced than mine and said his resemblance to their mother had faded. Describing his brother once his best friend as, quote, his polar opposite, he said, my dear brother, my arch enemy, how did we come to this? I felt overwhelming tiredness. I wanted to go home. So it's okay for Megan to rip on Kate's baby brain, and it's okay for him to mock his brother's baldness. But we are supposed to dismiss reports that this is a couple of bullies as completely made up to make them unfairly look like villains. Well, <laughs> let's unpack this very briefly. I mean, this is the hypocrisy of the whole operation. You have got two people who claim to be victims who have now clearly become the aggressors, as I said, but they have intended to, 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 to destroy uh, Charles and uh, William. But the whole point is at that funeral in Windsor, if you remember when they came out of the chapel, Kate made huge efforts successfully that uh, Harry and William would walk up the hill together in an attempt that the two of them could somehow be reconciled, despite all the horrible incidents that had occurred before. And it clearly failed. But even worse than that, the duplicity of the Sussexes is another point here. When they came for the Queen's funeral and they had that alleged uh, rec reconciliation outside the gates, meeting all the well-wishers uh, who were clearly mourning for the Queen, by then, they, Harry had written his book. Harry and Meghan had done their Netflix uh, series. They knew exactly all the terrible things they were going to say about Kate and William. And yet standing there with their smiles and everything, they completely concealed what they had actually done. And that is the duplicity of this couple. It is quite shocking. Uh, uh, you know, they, <laughs> Harry and Meghan are brilliant actors. Uh, and the victims are Kate and William in this case. Hmm. In, in that moment, which he does write about again, this is where he was staring at William's baldness and seeing how little he resembled their mother. Um, he says in this exchange, Harry accused William and Charles of effectively gaslighting him by denying he understood why uh, Harry and Meghan had left for the U.S. Harry said of Frogmore Cottage, Willie. This was supposed to be our house. We were going to spend the rest of our lives here. William re replied, you left, Harold. Harry said, yeah, and you know why. And his brother shot back, honestly, no, Harold, not really. Harry then turned to Charles, who was looking at me with an expression that said, me neither. He said he felt like they didn't know him and they were not in a position to listen to them. And I'm thinking about this, Tom, thinking, of course, they probably feared you were recording all of this and we're going to put it in your book or in your Netflix deal, which, as you point out, had already been struck and was in process. Why would they open up to him in this well, circumstance? Well, Megan, we must, we must remember one other point about all this. That, of course, this is the writing of a ghostwriter. This isn't Harry, really. Mm. This is Harry as told by a professional writer who is sensationalizing the material he's been given. And there's no reason why we should believe it to be like this at all. 
I mean, they have a history, the Sussexes, ever since the Oprah Winfrey interview, where uh, they, there were 17 lies uh, assessed in what they told it. And, and the Netflix was, the series was filled with inaccuracies and outright untruths too. So we, there's no reason to actually believe what Harry has now put in his book. Uh, Random point. House cleverly chose an outstanding writer to do a, 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 a oh, I am a victim story. And, and that's what he has done. He's earned his money, but it uh, doesn't mean it's the truth. Well, it's funny because back to that first fight that he writes about in 2019, where William allegedly attacked him, he has William before he walked out saying, he writes, he turned and called back, you don't need to tell Meg about this. And Harold responds, you mean that you attacked me? Response, I didn't attack you, Harold. I don't believe that. It doesn't sound real that Prince William would say, you don't need to tell Meg about this. Like he was somehow terrified that Meghan Markle would find out what happened. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the whole point is by then the relationship had broken down. That's why they were planning already their exit to Canada and then to California. Uh, but it sounds good, doesn't it? And put it in and who can dispute it other than William? And I think this is the point now. We've got to the stage where you say that in the introduction that the palace had kept quiet, but they can't keep quiet for much longer. The damage has got to somehow be stopped. And I do think that William will have to, in one way or another, give an interview, uh, giving his point of view, trying to silence this constant campaign from Montecito against the royal family, because mm -hmm. there's no end to this. There's no end of inventions. There's no end of confessions, allegations and accusations. I mean, it is really quite sensational. In the history of Britain, it's never happened before. I don't right. think the history of any royal family has had to put up with this sort of uh, vitriol. Well, it's so unfortunate. I mean, who among us hasn't had a brawl or some sort of unfortunate exchange with a sibling? I mean, that's that's called life. You don't run to a publisher and put it all in print with the intention of hurting the person, talking about how he's always scowling at me and how he used the press agencies within the, the palace to hurt me and his unattractive bald head. And he looks nothing like our mother. I mean, he hates his brother. That's the big reveal that we've seen so far. He can't stand but, Prince William. Yes, but you know, the tragedy, and it is a tragedy, and all this is, that until Meghan appeared on the scene, Harry and William were very, very close friends, and they were known as the, the Three Musketeers with, with Kate. They were an extremely happy group, the three of them. And when Meghan arrived in her first appearance in public with the three, it was meant to be the Fab Four. Uh, and on stage, it began to unravel as uh, Meghan began saying how she would use her new status to campaign. And William and Kate said that, you know, that is not what the royal family does. And even Harry said, well, marriage first. And Meghan then snaps, well, we can multitask. There's no need to wait. And that's the point. Uh, she, Meghan, has a history of disturbing relationships with, with, mm -hmm. her rela with, her, with the family. And as predicted by many people, she has now destroyed the relationship between Harry and his family. Mm -hmm. What's surprising is whether the question really is whether Harry realizes himself how he has completely cut himself off and whether if something goes wrong in his own marriage, which is possible, whether he'll be able to survive. I mean, what does he then do? I mean, it's quite extraordinary that he thinks that this can somehow go 
unchallenged and without an answer. But I've got to tell you one thing which is very important to understand, that King Charles hates confrontations. He is riddled with guilt about what happened to his marriage and his children. And it's very hard to see what that he will do the right thing, which is to challenge his son, son's recollection. Mm -hmm. uh, that's the problem. They are hiding at the moment, in my view, in Buckingham Palace. They're hoping it will go away, and it won't. They're, and these two are cashing in on these stories, and they're making hundreds of millions of dollars. So there's no reason to think they'll stop doing that. That's it's it's very lucrative for them. Um, one of the allegations that you know is is an eye opener is Harry alleging that William and Kate were not only totally delighted with his Nazi costume, but were behind it. Were the reason he wore it in the first place. He says that. They howled with laughter when they saw him dressed for this 2005 party. Harry was 20. William would have been 22. Um, and that uh, the Sun newspaper published this front page photo of him dressed as a Nazi soldier. The picture was taken at this costume party with a native and colonial theme. William was also a guest. He dressed as a lion. Um, and this is obtained by page six. Harry writing that when he chose the outfit, it was a toss up between two costumes, a pilot or a Nazi. Quote, I phoned Willie and Kate. Asked what they thought. Nazi uniform, they said. Harry writes, uh, adding that when he went home and tried it on for them, they both howled worse, uh, worse even than Willie's leotard that he was going to wear. Way more ridiculous, which, again, was the point. Then while he's calling this one of the biggest mistakes of, in his life in his Netflix series, um, he goes on to say that, uh, let's see. Well, well, basically that they enjoyed it, and that they wanted it, that they would that they would coax him into it. So. This dovetails with, I guess, a royal historian, Robert Lacey's publication in 2020, where he suggested the first sign of trouble between the brothers came then at this moment, back when uh, 2005, when Harry was 20, when Harry was resentful, he bore the brunt of public outrage over his Nazi costume, even though William helped choose it. To me, what that tells me, Tom, and you're the expert at this, is that Harry talked to Robert Lacey for Robert's book and was trying to get this story out there for a while now since since the rift after Meghan. Well, I don't think um, Harry didn't speak to Robert Lacey. I don't think that. But what I do think is that Harry's friends put that round at a very late date. What is surprising is it took 10 years for this story to emerge. And there's no doubt that uh, at the time of this great furor, if that was true, that it was the idea of the Cambridges, that would have leaked out to Harry's friends and been told to a newspaper. And for all these years, that hasn't come out. So I think, once again, one has to treat this with some skepticism. Why now? Uh, you know, it's so easy for Harry to say that, and so difficult for William and Kate to deny it, because mm, then it really right. does become a fight in the gutter, uh, and he gets away with it. And of course, the ghostwriter will be thrilled with that exchange. Well, that's a problem if they give an interview, Prince William, never mind King Charles, you can't go tit for tat on this kind of thing because you lose. I mean, any attention to them, any response by the palace will be welcomed with open arms by Meghan and Harry. It's just another day in the news cycle. So I understand the palace's instincts to just ignore these small people who right now are just trying to make a dime on their association with with William, with with Charles. Do you think it's tipped over like we've reached a tipping point where that calculation no longer works? 
I do actually, because I think that uh, after the Netflix series and now this, sympathy for the Sussexes will grow outside Britain and outside various areas in the United States, like the East Coast. I think across Africa and Asia, which is very important for Britain and the Commonwealth, and even in Europe, um, there will be sympathy for the Sussexes. People will believe what Harry has said. And most important of all, we'll see how the CBS and the ITV, British ITV interviews go down. Will the journalists interviewing Harry really challenge him about the veracity of what he is saying? Will they really say to him, come on, we can't believe you, for example, didn't hit back at William in the row in the cottage kitchen? I mean, if he is not challenged, then we know once again, he has orchestrated a wonderful puff piece, just like this book and just like the Netflix series, just like the opera interview. I mean, this is a, this is an amazing Hollywood production. It's not over. It's been going on now for two years. There's more to come. There's a lot of money to be earned by the trashing of the royal family by Netflix, Random House, uh, CBS, all of them. Uh, and at the moment, the royal family is just sitting there, uh, silent lemons, having to be beat, accept all the beatings. I don't think they can carry on for much longer like that, silence. Mm. What do you mean? I mean, I understand Meghan Markle's arrival on the scene exacerbated this problem tenfold. But I don't know that it is true that she caused all of it, because according to the reports, the book, which is called Spare, is essentially a, a, about his resentment in being the spare. The Guardian writes about, they say, Harry's resentment of being the spare is the unifying theme of, of his book through chapters on his childhood, his schooling, career as a royal in the British army, his relationship with his parents, with his brother, his life with Meghan through courtship, wedding and marriage, and so on. Early on, he recounts the story of how his father again said to Diana, wonderful, now you've given me an heir and a spare. My work is done. And Harry actually says, to ABC News, Michael Strahan, in another interview that's going to air on Monday, there's always been this competition between us, weirdly. I think it really plays into, or always played into, uh, about the heir and the spare. He, that's a dynamic he was born into that he doesn't seem able to accept. Well, you are absolutely right. Uh, I, I mean, rivalry between siblings is not unique in the royal family. And there's no doubt that Harry had to take a lot of the blame for some of the things that William got up to in his teenage years. It was deliberately, the blame was put onto Harry when they had uh, alcohol-fueled parties and drugs um, in a cellar in uh, the Highgrove home of uh, Prince Charles, he then was. But, you know, there's a big difference of that resentment, which comes naturally from the air. And it's not just the royal family, but obviously in industries and country estates and things that always the eldest son inherits. The youngest children always feel resentment. But there's one thing to feel that, but with all the privilege that Harry had, with all the protection he had, he could have found an alternative way of life. He didn't have to set about destroying his family because he felt resentful. The problem with Harry is that clearly on his own admission, he is disturbed man. He calls his head being so occupied by chaos. And he's not very intelligent. He hasn't got a job to do. He couldn't stay in the army because they couldn't promote him. He wasn't clever enough. And even getting into the army, they had to falsify his results. 
uh, exam results. So the real problem is a Harry problem. It isn't the royal family problem. It's a problem of a, of a young man who was tormented, who couldn't in any way find reconciliation, and it must be said, was saved to some extent by Meghan. He was looking for a saviour. Yeah. She knew it, and she played it very, very well. And that has now come to haunt the royal family because Meghan, having in Vatican's rescued Harry, brought him to California, shown him an alternative life, which is much nicer than being cooped up in uh, the royal palace, has also uh, said, this is how we're now now living, and I'll become famous. And she has. Mm -hmm. She's very clever. And she she is winning. That's that's what, of course, annoys the British more than anything. Having welcomed her with open arms at the wedding, having made a multiracial wedding ceremony of it all, given her everything they could give her, She's turned round and bitten the hand and, and uh, chewed off a huge chunk of it. She can't stand the British people. She thinks they're racist. Her Netflix documentary says exactly that, that the, the everybody who voted for Brexit, they're racists. And it's no accident this this movement happened at the same time she came into the royal family and was spurned, allegedly because of her race, about which most people didn't even know that she was mixed race uh, uh, until later in the relationship. In any event, um, he he has no empathy for anyone but himself. He doesn't in any way, at least according to what we read so far, have a moment of, I understand my older brother's in a very difficult position. He's in a very difficult position and is under enormous pressures to support this institution while still becoming a man and becoming a husband and maintaining a role as a big brother. Um, and he even takes a swipe at Princess Diana. In this regard, again, this is according to the UK Sun, which has also now obtained a, p- a copy. He says, um, Diana, of course, notably discussed Charles's affairs in her 1995 Panorama interview, which has been very controversial. William says no one should cite it anymore. Harry continues to. Um, and in that Panorama interview, she famously said there were three of us in this marriage. So it was a bit crowded. Harry blasted his mother's statement as wrong claiming, quote, my my mother's sentence that there were three people in her marriage was legendary, but her calculations were wrong. William and I were left out of the equation. I have to say, Tom, it's just a strange place to go. She was she was discussing her marriage with him and the husband's infidelity. I mean, yes, there might be a place for a, a woman in that position to say he cheated on the whole family. But I think most women would be thinking about themselves in that moment. So I'm not sure what he's up to there. Well, I think you'd ask the ghostwriter that. I mean, it's another line which has been inserted. I really don't think Harry has dissected and understood Panorama interview and why she did it and the background and the consequences, which were a disaster for Diana. Uh, mm. It is what, in the end, forced her exclusion from the royal family. They were furious, rightly understandably so. Uh, but she felt, uh, I mean, Diana sought the press. I mean, this is, this is the crazy thing. We're, every day there's a new allegation. Last week it was that Harry blamed the media for his mother's uh, being killed by Buckingham Palace leaking in the same way as they leaked against Meghan. Now he is leaking against the people he claimed to be the, vic- the, 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 the orchestrators of his mother's downfall and his uh, exile from Britain. Everything is hypocritical. Everything is so confused because in the end, this isn't the truth. This isn't the real man speaking. This is a very, very clever package. 
and um, endless speculation about a man who really isn't worth much speculation. He is, in the end, uh, disloyal to his family. And there, can, there, can there be a greater sin? And disloyal inventing things. I mean, the hurt in Buckingham Palace and Kensington Palace must be immense tonight. Think about Prince William having his, you know, receding hairline mocked and elevated to, to this level, um, having his private discussions with his brother, whether it's the argument in the cottage or next to their grandfather's grave revealed in a public book. The, the moment where where Harry writes about how he wondered if Queen Camilla, then just Camilla, um, they didn't want Charles to marry her. I w- remember wondering if she would be cruel to me. I mean, he was 20. What, right? What, what, if she'd be cruel to you when they were getting married, th- th- he was 20 years old. If she would be like all the evil stepmothers in the stories. And then he goes on to add, Willie had been suspicious of the other woman for a long time, which confused and tormented him. Again, how dare he reveal that? How dare he share his brother's confidences over Camilla? When those suspicions were confirmed, he felt agonizing remorse for not having done or said anything before. To me, these are the biggest betrayals, Tom. It's not even the the fight. It's it's William's expressions of vulnerability or sadness or confusion over really difficult topics like Camilla, the mother's death, the grandfather's death, the breaking up of the family that he has now put in black and white and print for a paycheck. That's what resonates with me as unforgivable. Well, yes, you're right. But you see, the background to this really is that Harry felt enormously jealous of his brother. Uh, William, after all, spent eight years uh, unmarried with Kate and was very careful before he married her so that there wouldn't be the same mistake as his father had made and mother. And they were a very happy couple. They are. And they've got lovely children. And there was Harry, a bachelor in a two-room, two-bedroom house on the estate next to William and Kate, who are living in a 20-room apartment, and happily, including Harry, of course, too, but much more stable, much more focused on the future. And that gnawed at Harry. And Harry now is getting his revenge, and that's why the book is called Revenge, is all about getting his own back, Meghan getting her own back, for the happiness of the Cambridges. And I've got to tell you, there's one other very important issue, which perhaps is in the book, we don't know. But one of the reasons, of course, that William was so furious with Meghan was that Meghan had seized on a story that William was having an affair with a mutual friend of theirs. Mm -hmm. I don't believe it's true, but it was huge gossip in London at the time. And apparently, allegedly, Meghan raised that with Kate to needle her. And that is part of the reason why William was so incandescent, that his wife was being told by Meghan, asked by Meghan, what's it like being cuckold? What's it like being betrayed by William? Now, that is the story. I wasn't there. Um, There's no doubt that the affair has been increasingly uh, written up. Whether it went on, I'm told it didn't happen. But Meghan seized on that to harm the woman who she was so jealous of as well. And Mm. that's, there are many more currents to come. There are many more allegations to appear of why these four people fell out so spectacularly. 
I think William should come out with a book that just call, is called Air. <laughs> and, and then he just rebut it all, tell his own stories. Let's put it out on the table, uh, American style, and let, and let the people decide. Tom, what a pleasure. Thank you so much. Truly read Tom Bauer's book, Revenge. It's worth every word. It's fascinating. I listened to the audio book and I read part of it as well, uh, but I cover to cover via audio and it is kind of delicious kind of intriguing, kind of horrifying. And honestly, you see this book and so much of it proves true. Tom, thank you. Pleasure. Much, much more to, on this story to come. But next we turn to 2023 and you and you. Are you just kind of hoping like I'd like to do a little better? Don't want to be one of those people who's like, I'm going to work out five hours a day, seven days a week. I'm never going to eat another calorie. No, no, that's not where we're going. What is reasonable? And by the way, how is every celebrity now 25 pounds thinner? That's next. Are you looking to make a fresh start this year? Maybe you're reevaluating your health, your wellness choices. Well, we've got a couple of experts who will discuss with us the latest health crazes and medications, what's working, what's not, what's safe, what's not. And we're going to be taking some of your calls. My first guest is a doctor to the stars. He's widely known as being a favorite of professional athletes and actors who must look and feel and do their very best for their jobs. So we're excited to discuss some of these celebrity treatments as well as things every single one of us can do to live our best lives and feel better and look better. Dr. Essen Ali is the founder and CEO of the Beverly Hills Concierge Doctor. And uh, he won't confirm it, but the reports are he has um, he has advised everyone from Ariana Grande to Liam Hemsworth and Justin Bieber. So the very most famous, most beautiful, most fit of us have reportedly turned to Dr. Ali when they need good advice. All right, Doc, thank you so much for being here. So um, overall, right now, people feeling like I want to be more in shape. I want to lose weight, but I'm tired and I don't really want to work that hard for it. How like what do we do with that attitude with those people? Hi there. Good afternoon. So that is a very popular question. I get asked this all day, every day, especially since, you know, New Year's 2023. I always tell people there's no substitute for the basics. You got to eat healthy. You got to exercise. You got to put the work in. But I get it. There's people who do all that, but they're still not able to lose the weight. They're stuck in a specific weight or they can't work out. They don't have the time. I'm sure you've heard about this new miracle drug out in the market. Everybody's been using to help achieve their weight loss goals. So semaglutide, which is the generic name for Ozempic, um, as well as some other uh, medications that are out. So Manjaro is another one that came out in May 2022. Generic name for that is trizepatide. They're medication that people are injecting once a week, and it dramatically helps you achieve your weight loss goals. People are losing anywhere from five to 10 pounds per month on it. Um, and it works um, amazingly. I see excellent results on patients every time they come in for follow-ups. Hmm. All right. Yes, I do want to talk about those because I, I will confess, like literally every woman I know in Connecticut and then when I was in Montana um, mm -hmm. has said, Ozempic, Ozempic, Ozempic. Like, it seems like everybody yeah. is taking this drug so much so that there's a shortage of it now for real diabetics, according to what I read, who are frustrated that people who just want to lose weight are getting it. And I, right. if you really need to lose weight, you sh I like this drug for you, right? But it's like the vanity, the vanity, like the thin women who are taking it. I guess I can see why people are upset that, that their diabetes drug, any event, they're trying to make more, 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 more. The thing that I've heard about, I don't know if, if there's a difference between Ozempic, 
uh, We Govy is the other mm-hmm. one. There's a couple of other ones out there. Is there is there first of all, let's start. Is there any real difference between them? So Wegovi and Ozempic, two different manufacturers, two different brands, but the active ingredient is both the same. It's semaglutide for both different brands. So just different companies. Okay. Um, Manjaro is a different company, different active ingredient. Um, that's terzepatide. And then there's a handful of other companies. Uh, there's Saxenda, also Victoza. Both of those, the active ingredient is miraglutide. But in short, they all kind of do the same thing. Manjaro, they boast that they act on two receptors as opposed to one receptor, which is what all the other ones do, semaglutide, which is the generic for Ozempic, um, Wegovi. So Manjaro has been shown to be more promising, provide more potent results compared to the others. The others work well also, but Manjaro tends to be more potent. So that's the literature shows. Oh, well, that, that sounds promising. Um, yeah. the, the, the knock on these drugs, and I don't know about that last one, Manjaro. But the knock on these other drugs is they could cause thyroid cancer, which (laughs) it's nice to be thin, but you don't want to get thyroid cancer. Absolutely. So there is a black box warning in rodents. There have been reports of thyroid cancer uh, forming. There are no reports from what we know as of now in humans developing it. But for patients who go on it, whether you're diabetic or whether you're using it for weight loss purposes, you know, I do let everybody know that that is one of the warnings. So if you have a history of thyroid cancer or family history of thyroid cancer, you know, it's probably not the best option for you. It was reported in rodents, but the good thing is it has not been reported in humans yet, but something to be aware of and mindful of. Well, are these drugs that I realize they're only recently being used sort of, I guess, off label for weight loss, but are, have the diabetics been on these drugs for a long time and are diabetics coming up with thyroid cancer? Um, so great question. These new category of medications are fairly new. They've really only been out for a couple of years. You know, Zempic is one of the first ones. So diabetic patients have been treated, you know, traditionally the way they have been, whether it's with insulin or other diabetic oral medication. Um, it's not as if most diabetics were being treated with this. This is all brand new. But yes, I understand the frustration if a diabetic can benefit from this. And there's a shortage. I would understand why would they be frustrated, why they would be frustrated. Mm-hmm. Um, but the diabetics who are on it, no. From what I understand at this point, there have been no reports of humans developing thyroid cancer from these medications. Uh, the, is it one of those things where, like, the little rats who got the thyroid cancer were giving like overwhelming do- doses, and then they got the cancer? You know what I mean? Is it like if you if yeah. you keep your dose yeah. low, you're less likely to get cancer? <laughs> you know, great question. I don't have the answer to that. They just tell us that there's reports of rodents getting thyroid cancer. So whether it's a low dose or high dose, I'm not sure. Uh, but it's promising to know that it hasn't happened in humans yet. Yes, what, but it's still young. I mean, that's the problem. It, it is, well, it is. How it's long can you stay new. on these medications? Exactly. So, you know, if you're diabetic, they stay on a maintenance dose and they continue to stay on it for management of their diabetes and their glucose levels. For people who are using it for weight loss purposes, typically they take it short term two, three, four months, and then they stop. Um, but that is one of the things we need to be aware of because we don't know what may happen down the line. Okay, point. so that's Thank that you. brings me to my question about what happens when they stop. Last year, Andy Cohen tweeted out, everyone is suddenly showing up 25 pounds lighter. <laughs> what happens when they stop taking Ozempic? Is there a rebound? From my experience, I do have a pretty large number of patients on it, whether it's for diabetes or weight loss. I think most people have maintained the weight off once they stop, as long as they continue to follow a healthy lifestyle. Of course, if you're going to all of a sudden stop working out, just indulge in 
high calorie foods, the weight will come back on. Mm-hmm. I did have two patients that naturally have always been overly obese that did continue a maintenance dose. But for the larger portion, most people just stop the medication and have been able to maintain the weight off. Wow. All right. Yeah. Let's talk about that other drug. Um, the one you mentioned that terzepatide. Okay. And that's the okay. same thing as Manjaro, right? Ter- ter- Correct. So Manjaro okay, is the thing. brand name and then terzepatide is a generic. So that one, um, it says taken in higher doses this is from the New York Post taken in higher doses. It has been shown to aid weight loss by curbing appetite, just like the others do, uh, and food intake while streamlining the way the body breaks down sugar. Do those other drugs do that second thing? So the other ones, they act on something called GLP, which is a hormone uh, that stimulates like insulin management and in a reduction of glucagon, which is a different hormone. But Manjaro, which is terzepatide, in addition to GLP, acts on GIP, which has more potent effects with suppressing your appetite, suppressing your hunger, um, early satiety, meaning whenever you do eat, you fill up a lot faster. So mm. terzepatide's claim to fame is that it acts on that receptor that the other ones don't act on. The the post article suggests this this one's like a game changer because they're saying in a clinical trial, participants who took a higher dose of terzepatide lost up to 22.5% of their body weight or about 52 pounds over the course of 72 weeks. We, Govy and Saxenda the other ones we were discussing, reduced mm-hmm. body weight by around 15% and 5% respectively. So, I mean, that's that sounds like a real game changer. And and they say this one's already approved by the FDA to treat diabetes under that name Manjaro. But is it about to get approved for weight loss? From what I understand, they're trying to fast track it to get an FDA approval to treat obesity as well. You know, we'll see what happens, but it is working great. I've seen excellent results on it. And if we can get an FDA approval for it, I think it's going to be an amazing drug for people who suffer well, why from Why would you take or... those others? Why would you take those others when you can take this Manjaro, which acts, acts on the both receptors, receptors and sounds like yeah. it's going to get approval for this purpose before the other ones do? You know, it's a great question. Um, I think if somebody was to do their research and see which one works better. Terzepatide really would be the better option. Um, I think it comes down to a lot what insurance will cover and what it doesn't cover. Mm-hmm. Um, and the medications are very expensive. So for people who choose to pay out of pocket, I mean, it's close to $1,000 a month. Um, so I think finances will play a large role and in what insurance will cover. So if your insurance- but It's so brand, crazy that insurance won't cover this for obese people. I get if you're a skinny person, you should pay out of pocket. If you're an obese, obesity is like the heart of every illness we're dealing with in the hospital and your offices like yours. How can insurance say that this is just a vanity drug for people who are obese? I think they're trying to save money for themselves. It comes down to that. Oh, it should be. Of approved, course, they always do. Opinion. It should be. Will it be? Do you what do you what, what are the odds? I think it's promising for Manjaro to get covered for weight loss because of the effect, you know, the effects that it has and the potency behind it. Mm-hmm. We'll have to wait and see. Does Manjaro now. also cause the thyroid cancer? Maybe I'm like, okay, there's it a latent. Is a black box warning on that as well. Ah, come on, <laughs> we need one without the black box warning. I mean, more more accurately, we we need one that doesn't have those risks. It's not the yes. warning that's the problem. Uh, it's fascinating, and it's. I mean, look, you know, we'll talk about this after the break. But a lot of people just say, oh, "Get off your ass, go work harder, eat less." But for a lot of people, genetics play a massive role in their body composition. It's not that easy. Stand by because Dr. Ali stays with us, and in our next hour, he's going to take some of your calls. Don't forget, you can find this show live on SiriusXM Triumph Channel One Eleven every weekday at noon East. The 
full video show by subscribing over at youtube.com slash Megan Kelly and audio podcast wherever you get your podcast for free. So Dr. Ali, we had a discussion during the uh, break about whether we would take one of these drugs knowing that it could potentially cause thyroid cancer, but that the odds don't appear to be high. And we had a split decision. I said I would do it. And Debbie, Canadian Debbie, my producer said, no way. And um, you know, I say as you get older, it gets a lot harder to keep your weight in check. I mean, I understand the vanity piece of it, but I said, Canadian Debbie, you stand by because there are other options that Dr. Ali can talk about. Outside of diet and exercise, we know about those that could potentially help somebody looking to lose weight. And this is very interesting to me. Hormone therapy, growth hormone, and something called NAD therapy. So let's take them one by one. What Hormone therapy, isn't that what you do when you go through menopause? Yes, it's similar to that. Um, now, these are, you know, I just want to say kind of off-label use, but very popularly used for several years. So when people think hormone replacement therapy, they may think of like a postmenopausal woman who's having hot flashes. And that's one category. Obviously, at that you know age for a woman, she's not producing hormones anymore. And then she starts, you know, hair becomes brittle and then skin changes, her energy levels change, you start putting on weight, mood changes, mm. you know, libido changes. So we will put them on low doses of estrogen and progesterone to help get them back to like the pre-menopausal levels. And it makes a significant improvement both physically and mentally and with your weight. Huh? Now, men will also do hormone replacement therapy, obviously not with estrogen or progesterone, but mm. testosterone replacement. Um, and it's actually much more common than people realize. And people may think that, you know, guys who are just trying to use steroids or injecting, you know, testosterone, but that's not the case. A lot of men do have low testosterone. And as men age and after the age of 40, their testosterone levels naturally decline, which can cause, you know, fatigue, weight gain, loss of muscle mass, you know, libido issues and testosterone replacement therapy is a great way to help with all those things as well. Hmm. Um, it's Can also I ask a, a couple of my friends who have gone through menopause who were telling me that they're doing this sort of alternative hormone replacement therapy, not like a patch, but I don't know, some sort of a cocktail, but theirs includes some testosterone, like for the women. Correct. Yeah, I was just going to get to that. So um, women will have a low dose testosterone, much less than what a man would have. And low doses of testosterone will help with like their energy levels, maintaining muscle mass, preventing, you know, the position of fat on your body, preventing weight mm. gain, helps with libido. You know, obviously I want to say this, there's risks and benefits with everything. So it's something you want to discuss with your doctor, but if you're a good candidate, testosterone has been shown to be beneficial to women in low doses as well when they're postmenopausal. Are you covered in acne and like new hair and muscles? <laughs> <laughs> so that is what testosterone causes at high doses. And for that reason, obviously a woman will take a very, very low dose. No acne or hair growth should not occur if it's being given properly and prescribed properly. Okay. Okay. And that's interesting. Yeah. So a woman who's of menopausal years would know, okay, now's when I should go in and get tested to see where my heart, but what, what age should a man do that? You know, I feel so with men, it's different. It really depends on how you're feeling. Um, a lot of guys come in after the age of 40 and they routinely want to test and will test what their levels are. So I think that's a good age range. You know, if you're a man going in for your checkup um, or alternately, if you're younger than that and you feel like you may have signs and symptoms of low testosterone, which is, you know, like fatigue or like low libido, low energy levels, you're unable to lose weight or you're putting on weight. 
um, too easy. So that is a good time to go and get tested also. Mm. Okay. Now, what is, I mean, growth hormone, isn't that what you give kids who are not, you know, who are like extremely short for their age? So yes, you are absolutely right. Growth hormone is approved for different conditions where children don't have enough growth hormone and it's used to help promote growth. Um, HGH, the short term for it, it's off-label use. Um, it's not something that's medically indicated. I'm just going to say from what I know, from what patients have been doing for years, it's been shown to have a lot of benefit if medically supervised. And again, it's off-label. So HGH is used by both men and women, various ages, to help with putting on muscle. Uh, now, it's dose-dependent, and it depends on what your goal is. If you're a man who wants to put on muscle, reduce body fat, they will do a higher dose of growth hormone. Um, women who are postmenopausal will use it for anti-aging purposes because it does help promote you know, new skin, healthier skin, more collagen, mm. prevent wrinkles, keeps your hair looking nice and fluffy. It's supposed to help with your energy levels as well, improve your mood, prevent body fat, keep you at a lean body percent. So it does have those benefits. Um, there's risks with it as well, just like anything else. So it's something not for everybody. Um, but those are some of the benefits with it, which makes it so popular amongst people, especially here in Los Angeles. All right. Now, the, I've heard the knock on HGH is it can make you look weird. It can give you like a long sloped forehead. Um, there's some I can't remember the name of the football players, but they're said to have I guess they're open about having used it. And they've got these long, slopey foreheads and they have a brother who didn't take it, who looks nor I don't. This is total speculation. This is like beach conversation I've had. So forgive me if it's wrong, but it can HGH give you that look. You are absolutely correct. That condition is called acromegaly. Now, in high doses, doses that you should not be using but if you're abusing, it can cause that and as well as other side effects with it. So, you know, if somebody is interested in using growth hormone, they should for sure talk to their doctor about it or an endocrinologist. Um, and if they decide after weighing the risks and benefits that that's the route to go, you want to make sure it's being medically supervised and you're not just buying it from some person off the streets and using a dose that could be harmful for you because that is one of the risks. Okay. All right. So that's HGH. What about NAD therapy? What's that? So NAD is a... A popular treatment that's fairly new as well, past couple of years. NAD works on something called mitochondria. We all have mitochondria in our body. That's where our energy is produced. So NAD acts on the mitochondria to help improve the energy production. And with that comes multiple other benefits. Um, so number one, if you suffer from fatigue, chronic fatigue, this is a natural way or you know, a way to help improve your natural energy levels without having that speedy, overly caffeinated. Um, side effect. Oh. Um, in addition to that, it's been studied and shown to have significant benefit on just your nervous system, your mood, your mental health, uh, it helps depression, it's supposed to be good for your red blood cell system, your red blood cells carry oxygen to your body, so it helps optimize that. It has anti-aging purposes behind it. Um, it's used to treat people who suffer from chronic pain. So there's multiple different benefits from it. Um, and as of right now, what we know, it's, it's safe, there's no risks. And people will either get an infusion of it um, or just an intramuscular shot similar to like a B12 shot, um, you know, throughout, you know, several different sessions of it. And, you know, mm -hmm. it helps with all those different aspects. Oh, I should mention those other weight loss drugs we were discussing. That's a once a week, like an EpiPen injection in like your in your arm or your belly or your leg. Correct. And, Correct. and this so is an IV potentially? 
So the NAD, you have two methods of using it. Well, actually, there's more. It started off as an intravenous administration, so it's an infusion right into your bloodstream. That's the most potent, fastest way to get it into your system. But, you know, alternately for people who don't want to sit there and get an infusion or they just don't like IV, you can inject it, which is a quick shot into your, you know, your glute or into your shoulder. Um, they also now have nasal sprays that you could do. They also yeah. have creams or patches. So there's other uh, methods of using it as well. And what are the benefits? This is going to make you feel younger and better and, and lose weight or not? No. Um, it doesn't necessarily help so much with weight, maybe a touch, but not anything significant with weight. But, you know, it's promising for anti-aging purposes, improved mood, improved energy, helps with fatigue. Um, it's good for your nervous system. How uh, often do you get it? It's different. So like if somebody's doing an infusion and if they choose to do a very high dose infusion and sit there for eight hours, I would say like once or twice a year. If Whoa. you're going to do, you know, like a quick intramuscular injection once a month, um, I have patients who come in every month to get it, whether it's like a low dose IV or intramuscular injection and they feel the benefits and they keep coming back to continue getting it. Oh it's actually become pretty, pretty popular amongst your regular population as well as no, is this a, does people. this cause cancer? What is there? Is there any downside to doing all that? No, there's no reports of it causing cancer. You know, it's something that we already have in our system. So we're just amplifying it by increasing the levels. Hmm. This kind of reminds yeah. me of the facial where they take out your own blood. I don't know. They take blood out of your arm and then yeah. they mix it and they put it back on your face. I that sure. like, Using your own bodies, you know, I don't know. Yeah. I'm not sure what they're using. Yeah, so that's PRP, which is completely different. But this, you know, they're not extracting it from your body, but you're injecting something to help optimize your NAD level. Okay. All right, let's get yeah. a caller in because we have some interesting yeah. calls coming in. Ken in Florida has a question for you. Hi, Ken. What's your question for Dr. Ali? Hey, Megan. Thanks for taking my call. Dr. Ali, I'm a 51-year-old diabetic. I've been on diabetes medication for about eight or nine years. My endocrinologist has never mentioned this Manjaro. And I'm just curious, other than what y'all were discussing about uh, the potential for thyroid cancer, why would my endocrinologist have never mentioned this drug previously? Great question. You know, I don't know how long your endocrinologist has been in practice. It is a fairly newer medication when Jar has only been out for about a year. So a lot of physicians may not be aware of it yet, or some physicians might be reluctant because it is newer. Um, a lot of physicians may choose to wait a couple of years before prescribing something so we have more evidence as to what's going on. But I think you should bring it up, whether if not Munjaro, some of the other brands like Ozempic or Wigovi, um, but they work great and it's been shown very promising for diabetics. Awesome. Um, but okay. it's something you should ask. You know? All right, let's go to Kim in North Carolina, who's got a question for you as well. Hi, Kim, what's your question? I was about to make a phone call for an appointment at a weight loss clinic. They say they do blood work and run tests with a full physical. What type of tests should I make sure they run? And are there conditions that should absolutely not use these type of weight loss drugs? Great question. So the labs I typically recommend is the same labs you would normally get during a physical. Check your kidney function, your liver function, check your you know sugar levels, read for diabetes, your immune system, your red blood cell count, checking your thyroid function. Um, so those are some of the basic labs that you usually do. They want to make sure you get all that done. Um, any absolute contraindications from what I believe, if you're a dialysis patient or if you have poorly functioning kidneys, it might not be a medication that is for you. So you want to make sure you're getting your kidneys evaluated. 
Mm. And also, I read, Doc, that it's something like if you have a history of thyroid cancer, this one may not be for you. Is there a way of monitoring your thyroid to make sure you're not getting cancer while you're on this thing? Um, great question. So you can get thyroid ultrasounds done um, periodically to look for any new nodules or masses or tumors that are growing. Um, and that's a quick, easy uh, way to go ahead and evaluate for thyroid cancer. Hmm. Okay. Let's go uh, over to Minnesota where Roxy, I like your name, Roxy. What's your question for Dr. Ali? Hi, Megan. Thank you very much. Um, my question is this, I'll be 70 and uh, family history of diabetes. And I've been a diabetic for about 20 years. I've, I weigh 156, could lose 20 pounds. You know, I'm not overweight, but this drug has me interested. And I just talked to my endocrinologist yesterday, A1C74, but what I've been told by some is that if I just lose that 20 pounds or so, I could get rid of the diabetes. What's your thought? Great question. Yes. So weight loss is known to help improve your glucose levels and help manage your diabetes. And so if you do lose the weight, you should be able to get your diabetes improved. Um, and since you are diabetic and it sounds like your A1C is high and it's not controlled, you are a good candidate for one of these medications. And because you're going to be taking it for diabetes, it will also cause weight loss. I think you would be a good candidate. Now, make sure you're healthy. You don't have any kidney problems. Um, talk to your doctor about it. But I think you are a good candidate for it. You might want to look and into it. Roxy, you could probably get it covered by yeah. insurance as opposed to paying 1000 or 1300 bucks a month. So that's near in the sweet zone. Thank you for calling, my dear. Uh, let's go to Maggie in Pennsylvania, who's got a thought. Maggie, hi. What's your thought or question for Dr. Ali? Hi there. I was reading about the Ozempic. Um, I'm hypoglycemic, so I don't think that would be a good fit for me. Uh, I have to tell you about a year ago, I'm 73. A year ago, I started working out with a trainer 30 minutes, three times a week and um, swimming. And then she helped me with my nutrition to get off the sugar because I, I do need to eat frequently. So I've, I've learned to eat good things that satisfy me. And to me, it's worked. I mean, I feel so, so, so much better um, that there is a way, I think, outside of taking these things to, to, to feel good. Mm. Well, and that's a good one. You say that you're, uh, how old are you? 73, did you say? 73, yeah. Yeah, I so that's, I mean, that's important because I think most people who are a little older yeah. think, I can't do it. No, well, it's 30 minutes a day, three days a week. By the time I get there, it's over. It's 30 minutes weight training balance. Um, and then she works with my nutrition. And so I do think, you know, people that want to take the chance and go, you know, take the medicine, that's fine if it works. But there is a good way to just get off that sugar and feel satisfied. And, and, and I would ask the doctor, if you're still going to eat the same way that got you to be heavy, what's the purpose? of doing this. Why, why not mm. just have liposuction, maybe start mm. all over again, and then, you know, try, try a different venue. You're absolutely right. There's no substitute for diet and exercise. And that's what I tell everybody, like this isn't a substitute for that. Um, and that is for sure the first line recommendation. There are plenty of people who are doing that though. And because of their just genetic makeup or their metabolism, I have plenty of patients, you know, they're doing like a 45-year-old, 50-year-old woman comes in, she's had multiple children, um, she's menopausal, she just cannot lose the weight, has a dietitian, sees a nutritionist, has a personal trainer. So this is something that helps them kind of get through that. 
Um, and then there's other cases too. Like I have can a patient who has, oh yes, go ahead. I was just going to say, can I ask you, because one of the things, uh, 60 Minutes did a report on these drugs recently, you know, the, the diet drugs we discussed, and they interviewed a doctor who said diet is actually not the biggest contributing factor to obesity. The number one cause of obesity is genetics. Ah, that's not good news for some of us. Is that true? Then they go on to say there's a 50 to 85 percent likelihood you will be obese if your parents are obese. Is that true? I don't know about that percentage, but yes, genetics do play a large role. Um, you know, I see plenty of patients, family members, friends who are very healthy. They eat balanced meals. They work out regularly, but it just doesn't isn't enough. Your genetics play a huge role in you know mm. your weights and how you metabolize your food, process sugars. It's such a bummer. And that's why these weight loss drugs could really be a gift if they don't cause cancer. And we'll find out, I guess. I don't know. How how many years do you think it'll take for us to know whether they cause cancer? You know, I think like five years is a good estimate. If five years go by and there haven't been any reports of human uh, thyroid, you know, the human developing thyroid cancer, that's a pretty safe number. Okay. And they've well, been out for two? Uh, Manjaro has been out for one and then Ozempic and the other ones have been out for about two. Okay. All right. Well, it's very good to know. Dr. Ali, last, last thoughts on like the diets that are out there, the importance of actually, like what is the bare minimum we need to do? Like if, if I came into your office and said, all right, I don't want to take the drugs. I want to do something, but it's hard to get excited. Like what's the bare minimum you would tell me I have to start doing? I tell people You've got to start doing cardio exercise at least three days a week for at least 30 minute sessions. And I think there's a lot of misconception. I ask patients when they come in, okay, great. Do you exercise? And everybody says, yes, I do. I ask them, okay, tell me your exercise regimen. And then they tell me, well, I wake up, then I have to walk to the kitchen from my bedroom. And then from the kitchen, I walk <laughs> to my car in the garage. And then I drive to the grocery store. And then I walk into the grocery store. And I'm like, okay, great. And then where's the workout? They're like, well, that is my workout. And I tell them that's not exercise. Yeah. Um, you have to do something where your heart rate's 120 to 140 beats per minute consistently for at least 30 minutes. Um, and I tell them three days a week at the very minimum, you got to start with that. And then managing and watching what you're eating as well. You've got to have a well-balanced diet. And I think people don't understand that either. Um, and I tell them, do you eat? Or I ask them, I say, do you have a healthy diet? And everybody always says yes. And then I'll get into specifics. I'll be like, great. Tell me what you had for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And they start off with, well, in the morning, I had a three-egg omelet with bacon. Um, and at lunchtime, I had two slices of pizza, but I did have salad. So salad's healthy. Mm. And then, you know, at dinner, I had a burger, but I didn't supersize it. So, you know, I think people think they know what a healthy diet is and what exercise is, but they really don't. And you want to make sure you're actually doing it the proper way. Is there a diet you like, you know, like keto, Mediterranean, whatever? Is yeah. there one that you like? You no, know, I'm actually very healthy myself. I grew up very chubby as a child. So I'm a little traumatized. I, I follow a very healthy lifestyle and I've tried all the diets. I think a keto diet works great. I modify a little bit, though. Uh, the keto diet typically is, you know, no carbs, high fat, high protein. I feel like a modified keto diet is great where you have lower fat. You don't want to, you know, put so much fat into your body, which has risk with it down the line. So high protein, low fat, low carb works great. Um, intermittent fasting has been very, you know, shown to be very beneficial. I've tried that as well myself. That works great. Uh, the Mediterranean diet also works great. I think those are my three favorite diets to try. And they're sustainable. You can do them long term. 
without harming yourself or feeling like fatigued or just worn out. Can I ask you about intermittent fasting? Because I'm a big fan of that. I do from 8 p.m. Yeah. to noon most days. But then there was some there were headlines about a month or two ago about how, no, it's dangerous. It's um, it's I can't remember if it said it's causing heart attacks or if it's just not working or cause you to gain weight because then you overeat. I don't know. I'll tell you, I asked my doctor about that and he said, no, I wouldn't trust that those headlines. He's got all of his patients doing it, but I haven't done a deeper dive on it since then. So did you see that those headlines and what do you make of intermittent fasting? Great question. You know, I think when somebody takes things to the extreme, you're going to see various issues, but if you're doing it the proper way, I think intermittent fasting is great. The way, you know, the way you're doing it after dinner, you just don't eat anything. You skip breakfast and then you have like an early lunch and then you're having a healthy lunch, healthy dinner, staying, staying very well hydrated throughout the day as well. I feel like it's very safe. I have not had any patients have issues with it. I love it. I'll tell you, if I see the numbers creeping up on that scale and I go hardcore on my intermittent fasting, like I don't have the snack in the morning that I think doesn't count, whatever, it comes right off. I mean, that's just the it truth. It, like you can see the difference in a week for sure if you, you have to be vigilant. And um, sometimes you have to have some diet soda, which I realize is controversial, but it works. <laughs> All right, Doc, it's such a pleasure meeting you. Thank you so much for being here. Likewise. You're welcome. Thank you. To be continued. Yeah, I'm sure we'll call on you again. Uh, and we continue the conversation on wellness in the new year next. Another doctor joins us and I'm going to be taking your calls. Looking forward to keeping this rolling. My next guest is Dr. Lane Norton, nutritional scientist, natural professional bodybuilder, and founder of The Carbon Diet Coach. He's here to share how you can work toward and stick with your health goals throughout this year, and we will continue to take your calls. All right, Doc, thank you so much for being here. So um, I know that you were listening to our last segment. What do you make of that very depressing, that very depressing uh, stat of if your parents are obese, you're overwhelmingly likely to be obese too? Yeah, so great question. This is kind of my wheelhouse. And I will say that research was drastically misrepresented. Yes, if you minutes. have both parents who are overweight or obese, you are 80% likely to be overweight or obese yourself. But the idea that that's genetics, there are genetic components to obesity. Most of them tend to be on the appetite side of things. For example, people who are overweight or obese, uh, they tend to not have as great of a satiety signal uh, from the foods they eat, they get a greater reward from the foods they eat compared to like your average person. And so there are some genetic components to that. But when you look at when you unpack genetics, um, you know, our genetics didn't shift in a generation. And, and the reality is obesity is basically a one or two generation problem. Before 1950, it's not that it didn't exist, but it was very, very minimal. Uh, and now we have almost half the population. So our genetics didn't change in that period of time. Uh, what happened, if you look at the research, is people began eating more calories and doing less physical activity. Now, uh, genetics really only loads up the gun for obesity. It's kind of behavior and lifestyle that pulls the trigger. But we do live in an environment where, you know, we have access to highly palatable, hyper-processed foods. And it's much easier to overeat now than even, say, in the 1950s when you had things like baked goods and, what, baked goods and whatnot. But you had to walk to a store, you had to cook them yourself. It was a much higher barrier to entry. So this idea, this idea that 80% of uh, people, that it's a genetic thing, um, the research doesn't show that. 
In fact, if you look at people who are overweight or obese and you look at their, their metabolic rate, if anything, they have a higher metabolic rate than people who are lean. Now, a lot of that is explained by the fact that obese people have a higher overall body weight. So they have a higher metabolic rate just to pull around all that tissue. But when, even when you standardize for their lean mass, they have at least the same metabolic rate as people who are lean. And so this idea that it's genetics, yes, there are some things on the appetite side, but this idea that obese people have like slower metabolisms and whatnot, while you can have people with like thyroid problems and, and, and those sorts of issues that can slow metabolic rate, on a population level, genetics don't really explain the differences, at least in terms of metabolic rate and energy expenditure. Mm -hmm. But there is some data that it may impact satiety. I feel like, uh, you know, I definitely have a long line of overweight people in my family. My mom loves it when I talk about this. Um, but can I tell you, I don't feel like I suffer from an, a never ending urge to eat. I feel like if anything makes me overeat, this this may sound weird, but it's like an oral fixation. Like, you know, I need to be like sipping on something or eating something or I don't know, but it's like very gratifying to be like eating or drinking something, even if I'm not hungry or thirsty. Well, and so what's very interesting is a lot of people get really hung up on hunger and appetite and they say, well, this diet, for example, ketogenic diet reduces hunger or intermittent fasting reduces hunger or all these different things. And at the end of the day, by the way, none of these diets come out any better for long-term weight loss. They all have approximately the same statistics. Oh, um, individual diets may be better for certain individuals. If, for example, you like intermittent fasting and you just find it easy to stick to, that's a great reason to do it. Uh, but it, it doesn't really come out as being better than like regular continuous calorie restriction. But, you know, the, the problem is so much of this stuff gets washed up in all the messaging that it's difficult to pick it apart. And one of the things I'll tell people is hunger isn't the only reason people eat. People eat for a lot more reasons than hunger. I mean, think about the last time you went to a social event that didn't have food. There's so many different cues. There's social cues, there's psychological cues. Some people end up eating as a comfort due to stress. Some people end up yeah. not eating when they're stressed. So it's very, very different. And I think hunger is a big part of it. In fact, the uh, GLP-1 memetics, the last doctor was talking about, um, the reason they work is because they cause you to eat less. So they don't increase your metabolic rate. They don't turn you into a magical fat burning machine. You just have a less appetite and you eat less, which is a, is a great thing. And I think that they're great drugs with a lot of promise. Um, but I think a lot of people get hung up on the idea of, oh, something's going to turn us into just like fat melting machines. And a lot of it's just on the consumption side. But Appetite isn't the only reason that we even see this in people who have gastric bypass. Some people will like hack their way around gastric bypass by consuming more liquid calories or whatever it may be. So at the end of the day, these drugs, uh, gastric bypass, a lot of what's happening is it's just kind of forcing you into lifestyle changes by causing you to consume less energy. What do you make of my uh, approach on the days I really need to go hardcore on my intermittent fasting? Because, you know, normally I'll I'll have my coffee and I'll I'll have heavy cream in my coffee, which I, I think is okay. Um, and a little bit of sugar, not much, but I'll have some in any event, if I go hardcore, then I won't have like a handful of berries or sometimes I'll have a, like a very small snack. If I'm hardcore, I don't do that stuff, but I will have a diet Coke 
And I asked my doctor about it because he likes intermittent fasting. And I said, and he was like, it's fine. And I was like, well, isn't it, isn't it supposed to be very controversial? Like the diet so and he said, it's no worse than following the number 17 bus for a, a block down the, down the street when, on your feet. Like, it's fine. What do you think about that? This is actually something I talk about quite a bit and kind of known for. Um, so I think there's a very large pushback against artificial things just due to this naturalism fallacy that it's something that's natural must be better for us. And indeed, like whole foods kind of as nature intended them are very satisfying. They uh, have less calories. They're more difficult to overconsume. But people take that logic and extend it way too far. And diet soda has actually been shown to be a pretty powerful weight loss tool. So in research studies, where they have people take sugar-sweetened beverages like regular soda and replace it with diet soda, they see weight loss. Mm. And in fact, in one study, they actually did a comparison of uh, sugar-sweetened beverage replaced with water or sugar-sweetened beverage replaced with diet soda. This was a, what's called a network meta-analysis, which is a very large study. Um, and they found that diet soda, or they referred to it as low-calorie sweetened beverage, but essentially the same thing, actually perform better than water. Now, diet soda isn't like a fat burner or anything like that, but what it indicates is people just end up eating less because they're getting that sweet satisfaction somewhere else. That's exactly so, right. That's, that's why they're better than just the flavored seltzer, which I also like, but a diet soda fills you up more than just a, a flavored seltzer. You feel like you're getting, I don't know, something more. Yeah, and you know, a lot of people have concerns about cancer, what I'll say is there was actually just a study published uh, this past week where they found no association with uh, artificial sweeteners and uh, cancer mortality. And you can find some epidemiology that does show that. You can also find studies in rodents where they give really, really high doses of artificial sweeteners and they see weird things happen. And what I'll tell you is if you give you know four or five times the normal dose of Tylenol, it can kill you. So yeah. just because you're showing something happening in lab rats when you're giving really high doses, that doesn't really say much for what happens in like human beings. And when it comes to the actual like randomized human control trials, they really haven't seen any negatives. Now, what's been very popular recently is to say, well, it negatively affects your gut microbiota. That research is still really new. We don't understand enough about the gut microbiome. And I've spoken to a few different gut microbiome experts who I know and they said, you know, on the list of things that they're concerned about with gut microbiota, diet soda is pretty far down there. And in fact, in some of these studies, they actually showed that artificial sweeteners increased these, uh, the population of certain species of bacteria that we think are actually good for the gut. So we do know that things like sucralose can change your gut microbiome. What we don't know is if that's a good, a bad, or a neutral change. Okay. And what I will say is if that diet soda can help you lose 20, 30, 50 pounds, regardless of these small things that might be happening, it's hard to argue that you're a less healthy person for having used diet soda if that mm. tool helps you take off a significant amount of weight. Well, and even, you know, I'm not intermittent fasting for weight loss anymore. I'm just doing it for health and weight maintenance. And I and all these studies I read say that, that these extended periods of not eating are very healthy for you. So if a diet soda can help you extend that by two hours, that's sort of my thinking. Let me ask you this. One of the things I know you're big on is you need to be consistent. Like one of the keys to losing weight, keeping off its consistency. Can I tell you, this is so hard. 
Because if you're like me and you generally eat well, right, and you'd have to be to stay relatively thin, sometimes you go on a two-week break over Christmas, right, or you get to the weekend and you're like, yay me, you know, this is my chance to indulge. And I always look around at these like bone thin women and I'm like, she doesn't do that. She's not doing what I'm doing. You know, like she's not rewarding herself with the rich dessert or the second helping. And I think I'm going to be more like that other woman. And then I think it's so hard. I want it. So how how do you become more consistent? So I think trying to make it into your habits as opposed to just relying on willpower, um, you know, Building in habits is much more sustainable than anything else. And one of the things I will say is, you know, trying to just rely on, okay, I'm never going to indulge. I'm never, it's, it's probably not a reasonable expectation. What needs to be better managed is when I indulge, how do I indulge responsibly without going crazy? You, you make a really great point, which is when you're looking at the calendar year, we know that obesity is something that happens throughout adulthood. And if you break down how much weight people gain during adulthood, it ends up being like a, an excess of like 20 to 30 calories a day or something like that. Mm. But the thing is, people don't gain weight linearly throughout the year. That's not how it happens. In fact, the research shows that people pretty much don't put on weight except for almost exclusively the six weeks between the near the end of November and January yes. 1st. 100%. It's like Halloween, Thanksgiving, Christmas. And if you've got kids, Halloween is a factor. All this candy comes in. You might not buy it at the store, but it's sitting right there. It's like you're minding your own business. The Almond Joy is eyeing you, begging to be eaten. It feels rude to ignore. But that kicks it off. And then, boom, next thing you know, you're five to seven to ten pounds up. Yeah, and I think, you know, on average, the, the research shows in adulthood during that time period, People put on anywhere from like one to five pounds and typically don't take it back off during the year. So you're getting this weight gain kind of in chunks and then it's not coming off. So one of the things I tell people is, you know, just trying to practice avoidance. It can work, but tends to not work as well because, you know, people are also thinking about their quality of life. Well, I don't want to never go out for dinner. I don't want to never indulge in an ice cream or a birthday cake with my kid or whatnot. The problem is people, if they tend to try to practice black and white rules, and that works really poorly with food. And in fact, there's some evidence that can actually lead to eating disorders. So one of the things I really try to tell, you know, our members, or our clients is, hey, listen, you know, these diets, intermittent fasting, keto, whatever, they all work the same way, which is people eat less. It creates a calorie deficit and they lose weight. Now, so... You can pick your form of restriction. So, for example, for you, intermittent fasting is something that has been easy for you or you know, easier, feels more sustainable, completely reasonable reason to do it. For other people, they say, I get so hungry that I just end up binge eating at night. Well, for them, maybe not so much. But no matter what you choose to do, you need to keep a flexible mindset, which is I can have some treats. I can have some more calorie-dense food, but I need to be aware that I'm doing that and compensate appropriately which I tend to think about things as like a weekly budget, for example. So if you know, for example, you've got a Christmas dinner coming up, well, then maybe you eat a little bit less earlier in the week and maybe the day of your the Christmas dinner, you eat a little bit less earlier in the day. You focus on something like mostly protein and keep your carbohydrate and fat sources low, you know, and yeah. that way you're creating room in your budget because I, I really like to use monetary examples. For example, if your budget is, say, you know, $1,500 a week, 
and you're great the first six days, you only spend 600. But on the seventh day, you spend a thousand, you still blown your budget, right? So if you can create the necessary room in your budget for these days that you know you might be consuming more, um, then you can actually still move towards your goals. But one of the things I'll really tell people too is like, don't try to actively engage in weight loss during the holidays. That tends to ruin holidays and weight loss. I really get our clients to try and focus on weight maintenance. I say, listen, most people gain weight during this time. If we could just get you to maintain your weight during this time, you're actually ahead of the curve because we always can focus on weight loss later. Mm, I like that. So and my husband, Doug, always says, and he's thin, and he always says, if you feel yourself getting too heavy, cut a meal in half or cut a meal out. Like, and that's how, that's his general approach to eating. And it always works for him because, you know, it's just what you're saying. You know, you feel things getting a little too expansive, get, shrink it down a little bit. Don't, you don't have to go hardcore. You don't have to skip three days of eating, cut one meal yeah. out or cut one meal in half and see how that works. It works well for him. So what, I know that you're sort of big on the, look, you could do the low fat, the high protein, the whatever, you could cut out all processed foods, you know, all... The bottom line is kind of what it's always been. You need to take in fewer calories if you want to lose weight. But you're also you're also a proponent of exercise saying there's there's it's not true that you don't need to exercise to maintain a good weight. Because like I will say that I, I have believed that if I'm trying to lose weight, I shouldn't exercise because exercise will make me hungrier and I'll, I'll overcompensate for whatever calories I burn. So. On a population level, if anything, it looks like the opposite might be true. Now, I'm not saying that there's not individual variability. There absolutely can be. And I have spoken to people who say, hey, if I exercise, you know, it makes me hungrier. That is totally, uh, that can be a possibility. But in the population studies, when we look at intake, what we actually see is exercise tends to have a satiating effect. So it's not that you have less appetite, but your body tends to respond better to satiety signals. Um, and so people who exercise, they actually don't tend to compensate up to a certain point. If you're doing like intense hours and hours of activity, yes, you will start eating more. Um, but in terms of like light to moderate exercise, people don't tend to compensate for that. And in the most rigorous randomized control trials, we do see people who exercise tend to lose weight. And you don't have to do it. You don't have to exercise. But if we're talking about overall health, I mean, exercise is one of the only things that will actually improve your metabolic health without even losing weight. You don't even have to lose weight. If you just start exercising, you'll improve your metabolic health. And, and it stays off. At, sorry, go ahead. It stays off. So if, if you lose weight and you're an exerciser, it's, you have a way better chance, I've heard you say, of keeping off that weight. Yeah, so that's, that's what I was just about to say was if you look at long-term studies of the people who lose weight and keep it off, we're talking less than probably 10% of people who attempt weight loss lose weight and keep it off for years. One of the top three most common things is they exercise regularly. So if people who lose weight and keep it off, over 70% of them engage in regular exercise. Now, part of that could be the appetite satiety effect. Another part of that uh, could also be the fact that if you're exercising, you're not thinking about eating food during that time, right? Like a lot of people get out of boredom as well. And when people tend to get into exercise and they tend to feel better, they tend to just start bringing in other healthier habits just by default. Yes. So, and yes, there is a calorie burn portion to it, 
But the actual calories you burn during exercise appear to be pretty minimal, to be honest. Um, you do burn some, and obviously if you're exercising intensely for three hours a day, you'll burn quite a bit. But for most of us who don't have that period of time to work out, the actual calorie burn you get from exercise is pretty small, but the effect on satiety in your lifestyle appears to have a pretty good payoff. So for people who are sitting there right now saying, you know, I want to, I don't know, it's okay. I don't have a gym membership. I don't want to drive to the, I, like, what can people do literally today on eating yeah. and exercising to just flip the switch? So the first thing I'll say um, is in this systematic review, I looking at different characteristics of people who lose weight and keep it off. One of the main things that stood out to me was they talked about having to develop a new identity. And addicts talk about this. So if you're somebody who's addicted to drugs or alcohol, you can't hang around the same friends, you can't go to the same places because your entire lifestyle was constructed around that addiction. Now, I'm not saying these are necessarily food addicts, but if you're somebody who's overweight or obese, you've lived your life in such a way that your habits and your behaviors are conducive to that. And if you're gonna change those, you basically have to create a new person. So one of the things I'll say is, think about the person that you want to become. You're not gonna be able to get to become that person while dragging your old habits and behaviors behind you. Mm. What you're gonna to have to do is think about, what do I believe that this person does? What are the daily habits and behaviors of that person? And then how do I retroactively put those into place so that I become this person? And I think that's really powerful. So you don't say, I have to go to the gym. You say, I'm someone who goes to the gym. I'm someone who exercises, or I'm somebody who eats healthy. That's part of who I am. Now, at first, you're going to be lying to yourself to get there. But over time, you can get there. And what I will say is it doesn't have to be, I go to the gym, I train hard for two hours a day. I mean, that's me because I love it. But if you're somebody who doesn't like going to the gym, just do whatever gets you in there. If that's you know, a spin class, great. Or if that's being at home on a Peloton, great. If that's going for a walk for 30 minutes a day, great. But do something. And even when we look at like intense exercise is almost always better, but going for a walk is still better than doing absolutely nothing. Mm -hmm. And if we look at the data on mortality, we see a very, very sharp decline in the risk of mortality going from you know sedentary of two to 4,000 steps per day up to 8,000 steps per day. Now that's not because steps are magical, but it's just because moving your body is therapeutic for your health. Hmm. So I would say- Okay, but what if, what if, what if you what do you the got? new identity, you do it, but then you're like, I'm hungry. I'm hungry, I'm so hungry. I know I already ate, but I want to eat. In that moment, then what? Well, I mean, some of these weight loss drugs can be helpful as we talked about for satiety. Uh, two, you know, choosing low calorie filling foods, you know, fruits, vegetables, uh, lean sources of meat, animal products, those sorts of things. Uh, but then beyond that, understanding that that, that temporary discomfort will pass. You don't remain hungry forever. It will pass. And I, I, I do the same thing. Um, you know, it's the great dichotomy of life. Whatever makes you comfortable in the short term will make you uncomfortable in the long term. Whatever makes you uncomfortable in the short term actually tends to make your life easier in the long term. So you have to be willing to trade out that short-term discomfort for long-term gain. And I think what a lot of people, especially who are overweight or obese, struggle with is they've tried so many things and they've kind of gone back. 
that they feel like, oh, I, I can't trust this process because it's not going to work. And so they bail on it early. And I will say, you have to buy in. You have to trust the process. You have to put the work in without having a guaranteed outcome. But if you put the work in, you have a much better chance that you're going to get that outcome. And, I like that idea uh, of just thinking about yourself as this different person as opposed to, I will lose 10 pounds or I will work out five days. It's like, I am the kind of person who lives this way and that's what I'm committing to. Absolutely. I have a friend, um, he's a Hollywood actor named Ethan Suplee. Uh, you may know of him, but he lost over 300 pounds. And he has a saying, whenever he posts up on his Instagram, he'll say, I killed my clone today. And mm -hmm. I asked him, I said, is this what you're talking about? Like this creating of a new identity. And he said, that is exactly what I'm talking about. Because within me, there is the current version of me and there's still the old version of me who wants to come back. And every day I have to kill that clone version of myself if I want to maintain what I have. Mm, I like that. Let me get uh, a call in. Eric in Missouri has been waiting on the line for a bit. Eric, hi. What's your thought or question? Uh, I was on Munjaro. Uh, not was. I am currently. I uh, started it back in July. Just wanted to let everybody know that you really have to force yourself to drink on that first box of medication. I, I thought the medication was almost killing me. I was sick. It was pure dehydration. Hmm. It is, it is so powerful that it, for the first week, I really had to force myself to eat, and I didn't even notice that I wasn't drinking. Wow. Did you lose weight? 77 pounds with four boxes. Oh, my goodness. Okay, so that's the thing. It sounds like a miracle worker, Lane. Like, so many people could use that little bit of help. I don't know. Do you think the risks outweigh the rewards on these drugs right now or not? That's... You know, I think for somebody who's very obese, um, again, you're just managing risk. So right now, we don't know that it causes any of these things that have been proposed, like thyroid cancer or cardiovascular disease. But I would say that if somebody loses 70 pounds on the drug, it's hard to argue that it wasn't a net positive. Um, what I will say is what he's referring to, there are some people who do get quite a bit of nausea, um, and that can be possibly part of the reason that people eat less. Uh, but that is one of the side effects is pretty severe nausea. And some people end up vomiting as well. Um, but yeah, if somebody loses 70 pounds on it and they were overweight or obese, it'd be hard for me to argue that they're not better off now than they were before. But again, we're just going to need more long-term data. All right. Your name is Dr. Lane Norton. If people want to read more of your thoughts, there's fat loss forever. There's the complete contest prep guide. Is there another place they can go Lane to, to get more of your thoughts? Yes, my website, biolane.com. We also have a nutrition coaching app. So I help write the algorithm for this app that will help people lose weight or gain muscle, whatever they want to do. And it's in both app stores. It's called Carbon Diet Coach, and it's excellent. Oh, I like that. Oh, I may be checking that out later today. Lane, such a pleasure. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Megan Kelly Show. No BS, no agenda, and no fear.